This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Over the last couple of decades, we have collected an awful lot of material with the intent of inserting it into this program, and I think it's fair to say that probably the bulk of it didn't make the cut. We like to paw through a large volume of material. But one thing that did make the cut, at least several years back on a regular basis, were some selections from the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader series. So entertained were we by this this, this series of books uh, that we had Uncle John Javna, their main editor, on, I believe, three times, Mr. McMillan. At least three times. And he was always fun. One thing that does amaze... Mr. Millen and I, uh, is how the more things change, the more they seem to stay the same. Or at least that was my reaction to pulling up a special edition of the Bathroom Readers series. It was titled Uncle John's Political Briefs, The World's Gone Governmental. And in thumbing through it, I was so entertained that I decided to make the entirety of our first segment today a look at at least one section from Uncle John's Political Briefs. The title of this particular series of essays in the book was Join the Party. The subheadline was American Politics is, for better or worse, entrenched in a two-party system. This book came out in 2012. I think it's fair to say seven years later that is more true than ever before. But they note that the Founding Fathers never even intended for there to be political parties. That's right. The Founding Fathers, whose wisdom we often cite, would have been horrified to see what became of their original ideas, which we will talk about now, if you don't mind. Essay number one starts out, For all the diversity of opinion among the Founding Fathers in the 1770s, there was one thing that virtually everyone agreed upon. Political parties were a very bad idea. In his farewell address as president, George Washington referred to political parties as the worst enemy of democratic governments adding that they were potent engines by which cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men will subvert the power of the people. That's not what you'd call a ringing endorsement. Alexander Hamilton equated political parties with ambition, avarice, and personal animosity. Meanwhile, his counterpart, Thomas Jefferson, could hardly agree more, saying, if I could go to heaven but with a party, I would not go there at all. The bathroom reader notes that the Founding Fathers' abhorrence of political parties was in response to the partisan politics that characterized England's House of Commons. The Commons was supposed to serve as a check on the power of the monarch, but successive kings have been able to use their vast wealth, power, and control of public offices to create a party of royalists. Thus, it had been reduced to members fighting amongst themselves instead of working together to advance the common good. This was what our founding fathers were trying to avoid in the United States. Warring factions that would pursue selfish interests at the expense of the nation. Their first feud came with the matter of the Articles of the Confederation, which was the first American government. We remind you, dear listener, hearkening back to your high school history, that the founding fathers of our 13 original colonies drafted the first U.S. Constitution, in 1777, the Articles of the Confederation. It was a flawed arrangement. The Americans, 
in the process of winning independence from one central government, that of England, were reluctant to surrender the power of the individual states to a new central government. So they intentionally made that government weak. It was soon obvious that that federal government was too weak to be effective. The most glaring problem was that it had no power to tax the states, which meant it had no means of raising money to pay for an army to protect its territories from encroachments by Britain and Spain. So it was in 1787, a constitutional convention was held in Philadelphia to draw up an entirely new document. During those debates in Philadelphia over the creation and ratification of the new constitution, some of the most significant political divisions in American history began emerging. Those who supported the idea of strengthening the federal government by weakening the states were known as Federalists. Those who opposed the new constitution became known as the Anti-Federalists. The Federalists won the first round. Nine of the 13 states ratified the U.S. Constitution, and Congress set March 4, 1789 as a date it would go into effect. Elections for Congress and the presidency were held in late 1788, and George Washington, running unopposed, got elected our first president, as you all no doubt know. George Washington saw the presidency as an office aloof from partisan divisions. He hoped his administration would govern the same way. But by 1792, Washington's cabinet had split into factions over the financial policies of Alexander Hamilton, the Secretary of the Treasury. Perhaps because he was born in the West Indies, in the island of Nevis, and thus did not identify strongly with the interests of any particular state, Hamilton was the foremost Federalist of his age. He strongly believed in using the power of the federal government to develop the American economy. In 1790, he proposed having the government assume the remaining unpaid Revolutionary War debts of the states and the Continental Congress. This would help establish the creditworthiness of the new nation, albeit by enriching the speculators who bought up the war debt when most people thought it would never be repaid. Hamilton's plan also meant the states that had already paid off the war debt would now be asked to help pay off the debts of states that hadn't, which added to the controversy. Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson supported the new Constitution but had anti-Federalist leanings. He grudgingly agreed to support Hamilton's plan on one condition. Hamilton had to support Jefferson's plan to locate the new American capital on the banks of the Potomac. Hamilton agreed. Hamilton got his debt plan, and Jefferson got Washington, D.C., but later regretted the deal, calling it one of the greatest mistakes of his life. In late 1790, Hamilton proposed having Congress charter a Bank of the United States as a means to regulate U.S. currency. This time, Jefferson thought Hamilton had gone too far. He opposed the idea, arguing that a national bank would benefit the commercial North more than the agricultural South, and would further enrich the wealthy while doing little to help the common people. Now, like Jefferson, Hamilton deplored political parties, but he and his supporters were adamant about chartering that national bank and strengthening the powers of the federal government. Faced with the determined opposition of Jefferson and allies, they began to organize what became known as the Federalist Party. Our young nation had its first political party, but another one was to follow right on its heels. As Hamilton was mobilizing his people, so was Jefferson. By May of 1791, he and fellow Virginian James Madison made a trip to New York to meet with State Chancellor Robert Livingston, New York Governor George Clinton, and U.S. Senator Aaron Burr. This meeting among the New Yorkers and the Virginia leaders, however informal, was among the most fateful in American history. The first links were formed in an alliance that was to last in one form or another for almost 150 years. Jefferson, Madison, and the others saw themselves as defenders of the new republic against Hamilton and the monarchical Federalists. 
the party they formed became known as the Democratic Republicans, or Republicans for short. Historians consider them to be the first opposition party in U.S. history, as well as the direct antecedent of our modern Democratic Party. The Democratic Republicans lost the battle. Hamilton pushed his bank legislation through Congress, and Washington signed it into law. They lost another major battle in 1792 when Governor Clinton of New York ran against John Adams for vice president and lost. A third defeat came in 1796 when Washington declined to run for a third term as president and saw a match between Vice President Adams, the Federalist, and Jefferson. Jefferson lost in a squeaker by three votes. Now, three years earlier, in 1793, France, in the throes of its own revolution, declared war against England, giving the Federalists and Democratic Republicans something new to fight over. The Jeffersonian Republicans sided with Republican France. The Federalists sided with England. Neither side thought the U.S. should get involved. Partisan emotions intensified in 1796 when the French began, began an undeclared war on American shipping as part of their war against England. Angered by insults, the Federalists began preparing for what they thought was an imminent war with France. They tripled the size of the army, created a navy, well, the Continental Navy had been disbanded in 1784, and then in the face of unanimous opposition of the Democratic Republicans in Congress, passed what became known as the Alien and Sedition Acts. The Alien Act said that aliens who were assumed to have Democratic-Republican leanings, had to live in the U.S. for 14 years, up from five, before they could be eligible to vote. The Sedition Act outlawed all associations whose purpose was, quote, to oppose any measure of the government of the United States, unquote, and to impose stiff punishments for writing, printing, or saying anything against the U.S. government. As it would turn out, by the time the Alien and Sedition Acts expired or were repealed, which was four years later, only one alien had been deported, and only ten people were convicted of sedition including a New Jersey man who was fined $100 for publicly wishing a wad from the presidential saluting cannon might hit Adams in the ass. But to Jefferson and his supporters, it was obvious the Alien Act, and especially the Sedition Act, were targeted at them. Republicans could now be fined or jailed for speaking out against the Adams administration, and if they weren't U.S. citizens, they could even be deported. At any rate, the Democratic Republicans were convinced that if the Federalists remained in power, democracy's days might be numbered. So they embarked upon their strongest effort yet to capture the White House and Congress. President John Adams had mixed feelings about running for re-election. He hated living in Washington and he hated being president. He warned his son, John Quincy Adams, future president John Quincy Adams, that the presidency has a very hard, laborious, and unhappy life. But he ran because he was determined to prevent Jefferson from getting the job. Now, John Adams liked Thomas Jefferson personally, and he saw him and Jefferson as the North and South Poles of the American Revolution. But he strongly disagreed with Jefferson's views on government and the Constitution. And he feared that Jefferson would drag the country into European war to defend France. On Election Day 1800, the rematch between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson went the other way. Adams carried New England. Jefferson won most of the South. New York was the swing state which helped Jefferson because his running mate was Aaron Burr. As founder and head of the Tammany political machine in New York, Burr was able to deliver the state to Jefferson, allowing him to win the presidency with 73 electoral votes to Adams' 65. Notes Uncle John, the Federalists had accomplished much in their years following the Revolution. They'd succeeded in drafting the U.S. Constitution. They had enacted economic programs that strengthened credit, and they helped the economy grow. By 1800, their best days were behind them. 
As it would turn out, John Adams was the second and last of the Federalist presidents. It got worse for them. Jefferson was re-elected in 1808 and was followed by fellow Virginian and Democratic Republican James Madison as the fourth president in 1808 and in 1812. War came in 1812 with England, and the Federalists vehemently opposed that war. When things seemed to be going very badly in it, the Federalist delegates from New England met secretly in Hartford, Connecticut, to draft a series of resolutions listing their grievances with the government, and they'd even discussed seceding from the Union. This was bad timing. By the time the negotiating committee arrived in Washington to protest the war, not only was it over, it had actually ended on a positive note, thanks to General Andrew Jackson's victory in the Battle of New Orleans. When the rest of the country learned the Federalists had been holding secret meetings to contemplate splitting off from the rest of the country, the party's image took a pounding. Naturally, Republican orators and publicists branded the Hartford Convention as an act of subversion during wartime. This pretty much ended what was left of federalism as a political force. But the die was cast. In spite of themselves, the Founding Fathers had created what they feared most, political factions. The era of the two-party system had begun. Anyway, I think I misspoke a second ago. Jefferson was elected in 1800, re-elected in 1804. James Madison took over in 1808, won again in 1812. And a third Democratic-Republican from Virginia, James Monroe, became our fifth president, winning election in 1816, and was re-elected again in 1820. By 1820, the Federalists threw in the towel and dissolved. It looked as though the American democracy might be returning to a one-party system. As it would turn out, that would not happen because of four men who wanted to succeed James Monroe as the sixth president. They were Secretary of War John Calhoun, Secretary of the Treasury William Crawford, Secretary of State John Quincy Adams, and Speaker of the House Henry Clay. It should be noted that Calhoun and Crawford were not above using political patronage and other perks of their office to gain an advantage in the field. And both of them leaked details of the other's doings to news reporters. In the process, the entire Monroe administration became tainted with a reputation for corruption. Many Americans were rather outraged by the, the scheming of John Calhoun and William Crawford. Among them, General Andrew Jackson, hero of the Battle of New Orleans, and probably America's first war hero since George Washington. He was, in fact, the most popular living American, and for years his admirers urged him to run for president. And for years, he had turned them down. For the election in 1824, Andrew Jackson became the first presidential candidate to grasp with both hands what was to become the most popular campaign theme in American history. Turn the rascals out! Jackson became the fifth candidate to enter the race for president. Although he was the least politically experienced, he was the most popular man in the country. As a result, on election day, he won more votes and carried more states than any other candidate. But that wasn't enough. The Electoral College vote got split among the four candidates, and none of them got an absolute majority of votes. According to the 12th Amendment to the Constitution, that meant that the House of Representatives would have to choose between the top three finishers, which were Jackson, Adams, and Crawford. Under this less-than-perfect system, each state's delegation got one vote. Because he came in fourth, Henry Clay was excluded from consideration. But as Speaker of the House, he was well-positioned to steer it to the candidate of his choice. And his choice was John Quincy Adams. It so happens that William Crawford had suffered a stroke during the campaign and was in no condition to assume presidential duties. Clay saw Jackson as a mere military chieftain with a bad temper and not nearly enough political experience to be president. 
It should be noted that the low opinion of General Jackson as a presidential candidate was shared by Thomas Jefferson. Adams, by comparison, was a Harvard-educated son of a former president and had served stints as Secretary of State and U.S. Ambassador to Russia. Here's the part I like about the Uncle John series. They managed to dig up a detail that I was unaware of, which I'm delighted to make you aware of. Henry Clay worked really hard to deliver the presidency to John Quincy Adams. But when the time came to vote in the House of Representatives, he was still one vote short. He needed New York. But the New York delegation was evenly split, which, according to the rules, meant that his vote wouldn't even be counted unless someone in the delegation changed his vote. Thus it was that Henry Clay put enormous pressure on an elderly New York congressman named Stephen von Rensselaer to change his vote in favor of Adams. But von Rensselaer couldn't make up his mind. So when his vote was called, he lowered his head, closed his eyes, and whispered a short prayer asking for divine guidance. When he opened his eyes, the first thing he saw was a ticket for John Quincy Adams on the floor beneath his desk. That was all he needed. Van Rensselaer picked up the ticket and carried it over to the ballot box and put John Quincy Adams in the White House. Henry Clay had delivered the presidency to Adams, and Adams appointed Clay Secretary of State, which in those days was considered heir apparent to the presidency. Andrew Jackson and supporters vowed revenge. The Jeffersonian Democratic-Republican Party was so divided over the election of 1824 that it split in two. Jackson's supporters now began to refer themselves as the Democratic-Republican Party, with an emphasis on Democrats, which they called themselves for short. Adams' supporters called themselves the National Republicans. The two-party system was back, and this time to stay. Over the next four years, the two sides dug in and slandered the heck out of one another. Thus it was in 1828 we had a rematch between Andy Jackson and John Quincy Adams. What makes this election of 1828 remarkable was it was the first truly national presidential campaign. Traditionally, the slow pace of communication across the U.S. necessitated that political campaigns be run at the state and local level with no national strategy for tactics. That began to change in 1826 when New York Senator Martin Van Buren the political boss of New York, known as the Little Magician, joined forces with the Andrew Jackson camp. Van Buren launched a centrally controlled communication strategy. The campaign formed its own newspaper called the United States Telegraph and hired a staff of writers to write pro-Jackson articles. They were then published in the Telegraph and 50 other pro-Jackson papers around the country. You know, at this point in the narrative, it should be clear that... <laughs> A lot of these things that were taking place in the 1700s and 1800s, well, they, they do seem perennial, don't they? While Martin Van Buren and other Jacksonians were getting organized, local and state committees organized pro-Jackson dinners, barbecues, parades, and other events where local politicos could deliver stump speeches written by the national campaign. Campaign workers sang campaign songs, another innovation for 1828. They planted hickory trees in town squares because... Jackson was referred to as Old Hickory, and along major roads and distributed hickory brooms, hickory canes, and even hickory leaves that people could wear to show their support for Old Hickory. The old-fashioned Adams campaign could not match the strategy or intensity of the Jackson campaign. Jackson carried every state west of New Jersey and south of the Potomac. Historian Arthur Schlesinger was to write, Jackson's victory brought a full-blown party system into existence. Martin Van Buren was the champion of the organized party with party machinery, 
national conventions, and national committees, all held together by party discipline and the cult of party loyalty. I don't have time to do it today, but if I had a little more time, I would take a detour into Party Politics by Robert Lurie, which explains how so much we accept of our modern political goings-on goes back to Martin Van Buren. Andy Jackson was re-elected in 1832, and by the time he left office in 1836, he was still considered the champion of the common man. If for no other reason, than he angered and impoverished a lot of wealthy and powerful people during his two terms. For starters, he instituted a policy of filling federal government jobs by firing supporters of former President John Quincy Adams and replacing them with his own. And although he ran on an anti-corruption platform, his appointees were, as Jackson biographer Robert Remini put it, Generally, wretched. One of the worst, Samuel Swartwout, a Jackson crony who was appointed to the job of Collector of Customs in New York. In this position, Swartwout oversaw the collection of more cash than any other government official, about $15 million a year. Swartwout absconded to Europe with more than $1.2 million of it, more money than all the felons in the Adams administration put together, Remini would write. Adjusted for inflation, Swartwatt is still the worst embezzler in the history of the U.S. federal government. What galvanized opposition to old hickory was what he did to the American banking system. Like Jefferson before him, Jackson hated banks, believing them to be corrupt institutions that enrich the wealthy and well-connected. He especially hated the second bank of the United States. He hated it all the more when the bank and director Nelson Biddell sided with presidential candidate Henry Clay in the election of 1832 and even offered to lend money to pro-Clay newspapers to attack Jackson. Jackson was furious that the bank would try to influence the outcome of the election. The bank's trying to kill me, he complained, but I will kill it. When he won re-election against Clay in a landslide in 1832, he set out to make good on his word. He ordered the Secretary of the Treasury to pay government expenditures out of the Treasury's second bank accounts while making any deposits to state banks. Critics called them Jackson's pet banks. In less than three months, the federal government's deposits dwindled to almost nothing. Biddle was determined to save the bank and believed the way to do it was by maximizing the economic damage from Jackson's measures. He dramatically cut back on lending, prompting banks all across the country to follow suit. The panic that resulted sent the country into a recession. Businesses in every American major city failed, throwing thousands out of work. Yet somehow the plan backfired. Jackson's popularity actually increased and his image grew as the protector of the common person against the greed of aristocrats and bankers. Again, does this remind you of anybody? In the end, Jackson got what he wanted. The second bank finally collapsed in 1841. But its collapse cr crystallized the political opposition to Andy Jackson. A new party came into being that involved national Republicans, bank men, nullifiers, high-tariff advocates, friends of internal improvements, states' writers, and all those who abominated Jackson or his reforms. They slowly converged into a new political coalition that quite appropriately assumed the name Whig. The Scottish Gaelic term Whig was first applied to horse thieves, then to anti-royalists in the American Revolution. Now it would be used by opponents of the tyranny of whom some called King Andrew I. Uncle John speculates that had Jackson limited his economic meddling, Perhaps the Panic of 1833 and 1834 would have run its course without the Whigs emerging as a major political force, but he didn't. By January of 1835, he managed to pay down the entire U.S. national debt, and the federal government was collecting more revenues than it was spending. Jackson returned some of the surplus to the states, most of whom promptly spent it. 
And then, anticipating similar windfalls in the years to come, many states began borrowing against these future funds and spending that too. Jackson's pet banks were now bulging with federal deposits, which allowed them to print and issue paper currency backed by federal monies. In the 1830s, banks printed their own currency. The country was soon awash with it, resulting in disaster. The influx of so much capital in the economy led to huge inflation and soaring real estate prices, creating a speculative economic bubble that burst in 1836. By the time Andrew Jackson retired in 1837, America was in the early stages of its biggest financial crisis to date. Jackson's heir apparent, Vice President Martin Van Buren, managed to squeak into office in the 1836 election, partly because the economic crisis was just beginning and nobody knew how bad it would be. Well, it turned out bad. The recession deepened into a full-blown depression that dragged on for five years, wiping out more than 600 banks and shuttering most of the factories in the East. Van Buren, who never had the popularity that Jackson enjoyed, found that the Depression had ruined his chances for re-election. In the epic election of 1840, the new Whig Party borrowed heavily from the Jackson-Van Buren formula for victory. They put a war hero at the top of the ticket. In this case, General William Henry Harrison. Thirty years ago, he had defeated Shawnee Indians at the Battle of Tippecanoe. The Whigs staged monster rallies all over the country. And when a Democratic writer made the mistake of claiming that Harrison would just as soon, quote, spend the rest of his days in a log cabin with a barrel of cider, unquote, he gave the Whigs a perfect campaign theme they could use to distinguish their man from a sharp-dressing New York dandy like President Van Buren. Harrison rallies became log cabin and hard cider rallies. Supporters built log cabins in every campaign event and served copious amounts of hard cider to the crowds. Van Buren was vilified by the Whigs as an effete elitist who drank wine from coolers of silver. In 1840, the Whigs won their first majorities of both houses of Congress in addition to the presidency. There were also Whig governors in 20 of the 26 states. Not bad for a party barely seven years old. They were, in fact, on the brink of becoming permanently established as the second major party alongside the Democrats. But their luck ran out. 67-year-old Harrison delivered his inaugural address outdoors in the snow. He spoke for more than an hour and a half, the longest inaugural speech in American history, after which he contracted pneumonia, went to bed, and died a month after taking office. Vice President John Tyler, a former Democrat who had joined the Whigs after falling out with Andrew Jackson, became president. But he was still a Democrat at heart, and he often vetoed Whig legislation. The Whig Congressional Congress wrote Tyler out of the party. In the election of 1844, the Whigs, still bitterly divided, lost the White House to Democrat James Knox Polk. But in 1848, the Whigs repeated their 1840 strategy by putting a war hero at the top of the ticket. In this case, General Zachary Taylor, a hero of the Mexican War, and they won the White House. But on July 4, 1850, history repeated itself. President Taylor evidently got himself a bad case of acute gastroenteritis and died five days later. I do note the descriptions of, of how Zachary Taylor met his end still contain some medically dubious information, which I feel I must digress upon. Uncle John notes that during July 4th celebrations, Taylor consumed large quantities of raw fruit, cabbages, and cucumbers, and washed it all down with ice water, implying that that would give him acute gastroenteritis. When I was a boy, I remember reading that Zachary Taylor died because he had drunk milk and eaten cherries. The notion that cherries and milk was somehow poisonous was a great cause of concern to my grandparents, 
who owned an orchard that produced apricots and cherries. Or my dear grandmother expressing some concern when the cherries came in that, well, I, I, it's probably okay to drink milk. And in case any of you are wondering about this, my dear listeners, it's okay. Yes, there's nothing wrong with eating cherries and drinking milk. Well, you know, we're getting it up against it on time here. I meant to do this entire section in a half an hour, but it ain't going to happen. So let's just make the entire hour today a divergence into American history, shall we? Well, in the minute or so that we have left, let's talk about the demise of the Whigs. Before he dropped dead in the summer of 1850, Zachary Taylor was dividing the Whig party as the nation was being divided over the issue of slavery. Taylor, a southerner, was a plantation owner with more than 300 slaves, so he alienated anti-slavery Whigs in the north, and many of them split off to form the Free Soil Party. When Taylor died, Vice President Millard Fillmore, also a Whig, became president. He added to the controversy by signing the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850, which required the government to assist the capture and return of runaway slaves to their owners. This managing to leave nobody happy doomed Millard Fillmore's chances for re-election and contributed to the destruction of the Whig Party. The Southern faction of the Whig Party, known as Cotton Whigs, defected to the state's right appeal of the Democratic Party. By 1854, most anti-slavery conscience Whigs had defected to a new party founded for the purpose of opposing slavery, the Republican. At this point, let us take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Radio Parallax. 